Good morning. We are finishing our teaching series, carrying on the call this morning, and our text is 2 Kings 5. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Feel free to use your phone for that. 2 Kings 5. And go ahead and once you find it, set to the side because we're going to get to our adult Bibles later. Um, as you're turning there, though, I want to invite you into a, something that happened in my family recently. I really had an entire summer to enjoy my two kids. I have a four-year-old son, Conrad, and a one-year-old now, Remy, and it is a joy to see the world through their eyes, especially my son, Conrad, because everything is so fresh and new and good about the world. I mean, uh, recently we went to a water park. We went along the Lazy River. Well, it's not a lazy river with Conrad King, okay? Around and around and around we go. You can have so much fun in the Lazy River. Or recently we were at the Boone County Fair going through the different barns of the animals, and Conrad is asking that question, why, so much? And unfortunately, I have to answer a lot of those questions, why, in those barns. But it's, it is a, a beautiful thing to see him uh, experience the world for the first time. Until you take your kids to a Japanese hibachi restaurant. <laughs> I don't know why we ended up there with our family, but we did, and took our seat along with other uh, victims. And the chef was there, and you, you realize that something is wrong when the hair on the back of your neck is singed off from the fire from the, the people behind you. Have, you. have you been there before? You know what I'm talking about? We had forgotten about the large fire display. And here we are with our two kids. And you, I, don't, I don't know if people take their kids, but we were, we were committed at that point. And so, sure enough, we began to ask some, some questions. We get our drinks, and then the upside-down smiley face of lighter fluid is now sitting on the chef's table, and the question is asked, not to me or my wife, but to my son, Conrad. Conrad, do you want a big fire or do you want a small fire? <laughs> That's a, not a good question, okay, for a four-year-old boy. But Conrad is confused by this. He has never had someone ask him that when cooking dinner, and so he turns to us, he's, he's questioning it, so I repeat the question, Conrad, do you want a big fire or a small fire? So he takes it a second, he looks around, and he says, I want a fire. It doesn't matter if it's a big fire or a small fire. He just wants to see a fire. At least he thought he wanted to see a fire. Sure enough, the upside-down smiley face of lighter fluid, he gets lit, and he's scared at first. I mean, it's a huge flame. He gets scared, and then he begins to have a smile on his face. And then we turn to one-year-old Remy, who has pulled up to the table a little too close. Um, you know, we're a little questioned about that. And she has this bug-eyed look on her face like, what in the world are my parents doing? What are we here for? But it's, I just imagine living life through their eyes. It's a beautiful thing. And as we finish our series called Carrying on the Call, which is really all about disciples making disciples, I think it's imperative that we have that same perspective, a childlike perspective. We've been rooted deep in First and Second Kings, but I want to make sure uh, that we have the kind of heart that Jesus wants. Uh, and I think our text lends itself to that as well. One of my favorite musicians is Chris Rice. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's been out of the, the business a little bit now. Uh, but he, he has all kinds of songs. He has funny songs, his cartoon song. He has hymns, his un untitled hymn. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But uh, one of his songs is called Kids Again. Kids Again. And it, it invites us to think about what it was like when we were kids. And then also, what is, what's happened to us now that we're adults? He begins his song this way. Have we all forgotten who we are? When did we grow up and lose our heart? We gave up our innocence and our energy. Remember how we used to be when we were young and running free. 
And later on in the song, he summarizes our plight as adults this way. We had so much more when we had less to lose. It's true, isn't it? We had so much more when we had less to lose. And it got me thinking, those lyrics and these experiences with Conrad, it got me thinking, and my attention turned to the person of Jesus because he has something to say about having the perspective of a child. In fact, he invites us to it in Luke 18, verse 17. Let the children come to me, he says, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a what? Like a child shall not enter it. So I want to do something a little bit different this morning to help us see this scripture, see our passage today like a child would, like Jesus would want to. I want to read it like a child would using this. You familiar with this? Raise your hand if you're familiar with it. Have you seen this? I hope you are the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you're not familiar with it, I hope your kids or grandkids are. When you think about what it means to carry on the call, to be a disciple that makes disciples, this has to be a resource in your tool belt. It's so important, I think, and our church believes this, so if you come up and dedicate your child to raise them up in the faith, you know what we give you? One of these. And it's not because an ESV study Bible wouldn't do the trick. It's because this tells the story of Jesus. Every single page, as it says, whispers his name. And even though your adult Bible tells the whole story of Jesus, this makes sure it's abundantly clear that everything that we read lets us know a little bit more about who Jesus is. So I don't want to miss that. I know we've been rooted deep in this Old Testament text, but I want to make sure we have this fresh childlike perspective. So I'm going to read from this Bible. The text is up on the screen so you can follow along. And as I read, I would invite you to experience it with a little bit of a childlike whimsy. Naaman was a very important man and a very important army of a very important country. So you see, he was very, very, very important. But Naaman was sick. He had leprosy, which is a nasty thing that stops you from feeling anything. Bits of you fall off without you noticing, like bashed fingers and squished toes. It might sound funny, but it wasn't. And Naaman certainly wasn't laughing. There was no cure. It never went away. And in the end, it killed you. Naaman needed help. Now, there was a little slave girl who worked for Naaman, and she knew someone who could help him. But there was a problem. Naaman was her enemy. Not long before, Naaman had led an army raid on her home in Israel. He had killed her whole family, carried her off to Syria, and made her into his slave. Every night, she cried herself to sleep. She had lost everything. Why would she, of all people, want to help Naaman? Didn't she hate him and want to hurt him back? Didn't she want to make him pay for the wrong he'd done? That's what you would expect. But instead of hating him, she loved him. Instead of hurting him back, she forgave him. I want Naaman to get well, she said to her mistress. There's a man in Israel called Elisha who can heal him. I'll go, said Naaman, loading up his wagons and putting on his flashing armor. But I'll go to the palace because that's where someone important like me gets healed. So he hurried off to Israel and went straight to the king. My healing, please, he announced. I can do lots of things, the king replied, but only God can heal. Just then a message from Elisha arrived. Send Naaman here, it read. So Naaman hurried off to Elisha's house, but Elisha didn't even come out and greet him. He just sent a servant instead. Doesn't Elisha realize who I am, Naaman thought? But what the servant said next made him even crosser. Wash in there. He said, just wash, Naaman laughed, in that slimy, stinky river? 
He looked around to see if this was some kind of joke. It wasn't. Any person can wash in the river, he thought. I am Naaman. I'm important. I should do something important so God will heal me. And he rode off in a rage. Of course, you and I both know that's not how God does things. All Naaman needed was nothing. It was the one thing Naaman didn't have. God knew that Naaman was even sicker on the inside than he was on the outside. Naaman was proud. He thought he didn't need God. His heart didn't work properly. It couldn't feel anything. You see, Naaman had leprosy of his heart. God was not only going to heal Naaman's skin, he was going to heal his pride. So Naaman finally agreed to wash in the river, and instantly his skin became smooth like a baby. And Naaman wanted to pay Elisha. God healed you. You can't pay, Elisha said. It's free. And so it was that a very sick man was healed, all because of a little servant girl who forgave him. See, God knew sin was like leprosy, that it stopped his children's hearts from working properly. In the end, it would kill them. Years later, God was going to send another servant to forgive, as this little servant girl did, to forgive all of God's children and to heal the terrible sickness in their hearts, in our hearts. See, our hearts are broken, but God can mend broken hearts. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we have broken hearts and that we need you. We need you. And so help us. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to have hearts that are soft. And help us to listen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, there is a lot going on in our text, 2 Kings 5. We're going to teach from the ESV version this morning. And you could teach multiple hours, multiple sermons on the entire chapter. We're just going to look at the first 18 verses. And I want to, with our kid glasses still on, go right to the crux of the matter. What's really going on in this chapter? I think that if you boil down our text this morning to a single phrase, it would be this. Check your heart. Check your heart. And I'm not necessarily talking about a John Christ type of check your heart. Anybody familiar with John Christ? The Christian comedian, he is quite funny. He sells shirts that say check your heart. I, I'll be honest, I own one of those. I do. And in his skits, he asks, he, he makes use of that phrase, check your heart. It would go something like this. He would say, if you're someone that gets a water cup when you go to Wendy's, and then when you go to fill up your drink, you don't fill it up with water, you fill it up with Sprite, John Chris would say, check your heart. Ryan, you need to check your heart. Or a little bit more humorous way, what if you were out shopping with friends on a Saturday, and you decided it was lunchtime, you want to stop and eat, and there were two choices, Chick-fil-A or McDonald's. And you choose McDonald's. Check your heart, okay? <laughs> Check your heart. Now, John Chris is hilarious, but, and oftentimes he gets to the heart of the matter. Um, but I'm talking about something much more real, something much more authentic, something much more honest, as we look and see what is really going on at the very essence of who we are. So as we look at, at our text this morning to see what it means to check our heart, I want us to remember something. It's what Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, if we're going to go through this process, we have to understand from the very beginning that we lie to ourselves. Right? We cheat ourselves. We've, we want to put a fake, a fake face on, but we, we can't hide from God. And guess what? Our hearts are still sick. Our hearts are still 
needing a cleansing. So what are we supposed to do? Where do we start? How do we understand what kind of heart we're supposed to have? Well, I think that's exactly what we read about here in 2 Kings 5. And so this morning, I want to look at the three main characters that we read in our children's storybook Bible. The servant girl, Naaman, and Elisha. I want to look at what they, what they do and what they say. I want to unpeel their life to see what's really going on in their heart. Because if we're going to need to check our hearts, we can learn from these three individuals. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 2, we meet this Israelite servant girl. Of course, there's a pretty big contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, we we meet the very important Naaman, and we're introduced to him and his story. But in verse 2, we read this. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Pretty innocuous statement. Not much going on in this verse, at least at first glance, but we can definitely glean a few things from this. One, this girl's family is dead. She can never return to her homeland again. She will forever serve as a slave. She has experienced incredible trauma. If you were to describe her life, all of these situations, they are as hard as rock, and they should turn her into a piece of concrete. Everything that she is having to withstand, everything that she has experienced should turn her outsides and her insides into something solid and cold. That's all she's experienced. But when we look at the text, that's not what we see. Look at verse 3. She said, the servant girl, to her mistress, would that my Lord, would that Naaman knew about this prophet who's in Samaria. He, this Elisha, would cure him of his leprosy. See, here we have this girl ripped from her family, forever serving in as a slave. She has every right to be mad at God, every right to be mad at everyone else, especially Naaman, but this statement shows that despite all the hard exterior, her heart is still soft. Why? Because she still has her hope in the God of Israel. She still knows of this messenger, this person, Elijah. So despite the trauma, despite the hardness, she hasn't turned her uh, lost her hope in God, and she hasn't lost her hope in Naaman either. That's why she's willing to serve him. And so when we look at her words, we look at her actions, we see that her life, everything that she does is, demonstrates a soft heart that's being held in the hands of a loving and sovereign God. Everything about this girl points back to God. You notice that? I mean, she could decide to say whatever she wanted to, but she says, no, you need, to, you, need, you need to interact with God. You need to find him. Do we have faith like that? When we experience life and all the tragedy and all the things that come at us that should make us hard, it, has it turned our heart into something cold and lifeless? Do we have a heart like this little girl? Do we have a mindset? Do we have a, 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 a servant's posture to make sure that everything that we're doing and saying is pointing back to God? Is our life a spotlight for Jesus? Since I came on staff a few years ago, I've had an opportunity from time to time to meet with a fellow pastor and mentor that helps me as someone that's new in ministry, which is a, a good segue to say that this whole sermon series on carrying on the call, it's not just for people that are sitting in red chairs right now. It's for everyone. We all need someone to show us the way, that someone that's a little bit further down the road to help us understand what it means to live this kingdom life well. And so I have an opportunity to meet with this gentleman from time to time. He lives in Illinois. He's three hours away. And there are lots of people vying for his time. And so I do whatever I can to set up these meetings. I offer to drive the full three hours, meet as early as he wants to. He gets to pick the breakfast spot 
He's over two, by the way. He has not done this. Their breakfast has not been good at these places. But and I'll pay. And I say all that not because I want myself to look at it because I, I'm, I'm not. It's not because I'm spiritual. It's because of what happens in those meetings. Because everything that I'm, I'm bringing to him, my heart's full of situations and scripture and questions. The entire time I spend with him, those, that hour or two, my horizontal perspective is somehow turned upward. He is able to put the spotlight on Jesus so that when I leave, I'm not talking about this great man. I'm talking about a great God. That's what this girl, this young servant girl is doing, and that's what we see in the person of Elisha. Remember this prophet that takes over from Elijah? We heard about that last week. He puts the spotlight on God as well. But when we read about it in this chapter, it doesn't look like that at first. You see there in verse 8, it says this. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, this Naaman, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, backtrack a, a little bit. When Naaman takes the servant girl's offer up at, for this healing, Naaman does not show up at Elisha's door. Naaman shows up at the king's palace. Remember, he's the important guy that needs to meet with the king. Now, the Israelite king is scared because he thinks that he's being embroiled in some sort of political game, something that's going to create some sort of conflict. And the king says, I, I, I can't heal anybody, but the king has lost all hope. He thinks that he is in over his head, so he tears his clothes. Elisha does not tear his clothes. All he says is, no, go ahead, bring him here. So Naaman comes with his horses and chariots. He stands at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sends a messenger to him saying, go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored. You shall be clean. See, when I first read this, I don't necessarily see Elisha putting the spotlight on God, the God of Israel. I really see him as being a bad host, and if not, just downright rude. I mean, think about this. Elisha's the one, Elisha's the one that offers up this opportunity to be healed. And so here Naaman comes all the way to his door, but Elisha doesn't come out and greet him. He sends a messenger out to greet him, and the messenger's message is, is a slap in the face. Hey, thanks for coming, Naaman. This is great. Could you turn around? Go, go back about 20 to 30 miles. That muddy river that you crossed, I'd like you to go ahead and take a bath in it. That's actually how you're going to get clean. And once you get out, dry off, and then do it again. Do it seven times. And then, I promise, you'll be clean. When I read that, I'm thinking, Elisha, what are you doing? This is a, a, a perfect opportunity for you to be able to just make it clear to this man who the God of Israel is, and you decide to send him on this merry-go-round. What is happening? And this isn't the only time that we ask these questions. If you jump down to verse 15, I ask some of these similar questions. Look what it says. Then he named, and after he goes ahead and does everything that Elisha told him to do, he's healed. He returns to the man of God, he and all his company. He comes and stands before Elisha and says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha says, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. I read this and say, what is going on? Elisha, this foreign dignitary, this very important man, actually took you up on your advice. He went the 20 miles. He took the seven dirty baths in the river to get clean, and he was clean. He not only returns, he, he, he's not just physically clean, his, his heart has changed. He now worships the God of Israel, something that most people in Israel during this time are not doing. Not only that, Naaman wants to respond, and the only way he knows how, he's brought all this money, he's brought all these resources, he wants to give it away. Elisha, what other response would you want him to have? 
He wants it to give it to you because you're his messenger, and what do you do? You slap him across the face with your words. You say, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. Elisha, what are you thinking? See, I think when we look at Elisha's actions at first glance, they are rude or self-important. But in the heart of Elisha, and hopefully in the heart of us as well, we see an unrelenting, unquestioning, unflappable desire to put God first and to give him all the glory. For Elisha, he wanted Naaman to go back to Syria, not talking about Elisha, but talking about the God of Israel. Not about something that Elisha has done. Elisha says, no, 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 I am nothing. My God is everything. It's him that does the healing. It's God that can restore. It's God that you should put your hope in. That's the same message that we should be doing. That's the the message that we should be using to make disciples. The call we're supposed to be carrying, it's that right there. He's the one. Put your trust in him alone. Is that what we're doing? Do we exhibit that same sort of resolve to make sure that we are out of the picture and everything, everything is given to God? And like Naaman, are are we putting our trust in God alone? Here's how I describe it with students. I tell them that when you're born, you have a chair or a throne that sits on your heart. And if it's a young student, they start looking, okay? Don't look. It's not actually there. But when you're at the very essence of who you are, you have a throne. And on that throne is whatever or whomever is in charge. That person, place, or thing gets to sit on the throne of your heart. And so I will ask students, student, what's sitting at the throne of your heart? Who's on the throne? And both students and adults can respond with that Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is at the throne of my heart, Ryan. You, you know that, Jesus. No, I, no, I'm being serious. Check your heart. What's really sitting at the throne of your heart? Because the problem is, when I do this, most of the time, I'm sitting there. And that's a scary thing. We're not made to be in control of our own life. That's where we find disaster. So what's sitting at the throne of your heart? Is it you? Is it a spouse? They're not meant to sit there. Is it your kids? They're not meant to sit there. Your job? It's not meant to sit there. Only Jesus is meant to sit there. There's only one throne. Only one throne. There are no two seats. It's not throne A and throne B. It's only for him. It's made for him. Is he sitting there? Because he won't force his way in. But thanks be to God, he will pursue you. He does pursue you. He does pursue me. And he uses the most insignificant at times to get our attention, to put our minds and hearts back on him. We see this with Naaman. He realizes this fact, because even though, remember how it says, the very important man and a very important army of a very important country, what gets his attention? A servant girl in verse 2. And guess what? God's not afraid to use the same thing twice. In verse 13, he uses Naaman's other servants to bring about this unbelievable conversion experience. Do you see that there? So after, in verse 11, after Elisha sends his messenger and tells Naaman to go wash, look how Naaman responds. He's angry. He goes away and says, Behold, I thought that Elisha would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure me. 
Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all these dirty waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, turned and went away in a rage. But his servants, his servants came near and said to him, My father, isn't it an unbelievable thing that the prophet has just now spoken to you? Do you not realize what he said? Will you not do it? Hasn't he actually told you, if you wash, you'll be clean? So Naaman went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Do you remember how the storybook Bible puts it, we read earlier? It said that God knew that Naaman was even sicker on the inside than he was on the outside, that Naaman was proud. He thought he didn't need God. His heart didn't work properly. It couldn't heal anything. You see, Naaman had leprosy of his heart. God was not only going to heal Naaman's skin, he was going to heal his pride. What I find interesting about this conversion and this healing starts in verse 14. Do you see that Naaman's skin was healed like that of a child? Naaman is an adult. In my mind, when I read that, I would assume that God would take the unclean adult skin of this man and make it clean so that he would have adult clean skin. That's not what the text says. The text says that God gave him the flesh, clean flesh, like that of a little child. Why? Why would he do that? Well, I think he's making it clear to Naaman what's going on inside his heart. You see later down in verses 15 to 18, Naaman makes this unbelievable confession. And we begin to see that Naaman's heart is not this cold, lifeless thing, that it has actually been transformed by the God of Israel into something like that of a little child, a very simple faith. God makes it clear for Naaman that the skin that he has received is exactly like his new heart, fresh and clean. And unbelievably, just like the servant girl that started this off in verse 2. Don't we want that? Don't we want God to come in and give us a clean heart? Don't we realize from Jeremiah's uh, statement that we can't do this all on our own? That's exactly right. Because that's exactly what God wants to do. He wants to give you a clean heart. Remember what Ezekiel says? Chapter 36, verse 26 I, God says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit, and I'll put it inside you. I'll remove that lifeless, cold heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, just like this young girl. I will give you the heart of a child. See, I think we talk about carrying on the call and making disciples. We can't do that unless we have the heart of a child. God doesn't want to make disciples of us adults that have cold, lifeless hearts. That is not what a disciple worth replicating is all about. He wants us to have, to see the world and to have a heart like, like kids. It doesn't make any sense for us to go on and replicate things that are dead. He wants us to have the heart of a child. I think that's the reason, it's the perfect way to finish off this sermon series, to look at 2 Kings 5, because we see what it means to carry on the call. We see it in Elijah, we see it in Elisha, we see what it means to make a disciple, to put the spotlight on him. Remember what Chris Rice said at the opening? We can't forget who we are. We can't grow up, lose our heart. We have to understand that God alone must sit at the throne of our hearts. And if we humble ourselves, God will give us that heart of flesh that we seek. When we get that right, we understand that carrying on the call or being a disciple that makes a disciple, it's not about doing big things for God. It's not about humbling ourselves to the point so that God can do big things through us. No. I think it's having the soft, simple, 
faithful heart of a child so that God can do whatever he wants to do. He can do whatever he wants to do in you and in me. And I think when we look past over these last several weeks, we see in the lives of Elijah, Elisha, Naaman, the servant girl, what it means to have a heart worth reproducing. But see, we have a question before us. You see it there in verse 13? It's the question that Naaman has asked by his servants. The servants ask this to Naaman. They say, my father, this is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. You see it there? Will you not do it? Will you not do it? I don't think it's just a question for Naaman. I think it's a question for us. It's as though God is saying to us, I've given you my word. I've told you who I am. I've shown you how to live. I've told you what to do. Will you not do it? Will you not do it? So will we do it? Will we check our hearts? Will we let God mend our broken hearts? And will we carry on the call entrusted to you and to me? Let's pray. Father, I resonate with Jeremiah. My heart is sick. My heart is sick. I need you to give me a heart of flesh, to give me a heart that sees you for who you are. Drop the religion. Drop what we do for you, and let us just return to our first love. Help us now as we enter into this time of communion to remember that, to leave it all at the altar, and just come and seek you face to face. We're thankful, Father, that we know that you will meet us. We're thankful for Jesus who makes all this possible. We pray this in his name.